Hello and welcome to Equity, a podcast about the business of startups where we unpack the numbers and nuance behind the headlines. This is our Wednesday show where we niche down to a single topic. And Natasha, this week we are talking about things that grow, but they grow inside. I'm very excited. Yeah, we're going to be talking about vertical farming, which is a term you've probably heard if you've been paying attention to ag tech or even just where your food is coming from. It's this belief that we can build up instead of out and at the same time kind of stay conservative on space and more sustainable on output. It kind of Sounds futuristic, but I think it's actually pretty mainstream right now, Alex. Yeah, it's pretty mainstream around the world, maybe less so in the U.S. for a couple of reasons that we will get into. And we wanted to explore the topic because we have questions about sustainability. We have questions about economic viability, startups versus government. There's quite a lot that goes into vertical farming because, well, we all eat and a lot of capital is going into this particular market. So we have brought along our own Brian Heater, our hardware editor here at TechCrunch, to talk about this because, Brian, you have had your eyes focused on the vertical farming space and we want to know why that's the case. I wish there was a more exciting answer to it. But honestly, I wanted to do a TC1, which are these super long features that we've been doing for a while. I thought it would just be nice. I know Natasha had written one in the past to really just drill down on a specific company. I had a few kicking around and the one that we were able to connect with was Bowery Farming. They're an organization based Mm -hmm. in New York City and they've got three or four farms out in Kearney, New Jersey, which I was able to visit. It really kind of ballooned from there, though, started with a, a picture, a found of this company and then just turned into a wider piece about the space in general. So are we seeing, and just kind of to frame the conversation, because we're going to dive into pros and cons and different companies and so forth, but are we seeing really kind of a wave of startup activity around vertical farming or are we more kind of catching up to something that has been going on for some time? Yeah, I would say globally, we're catching up to something that's been happening for a long time. It's relatively new here in the States. You know, Bowery, I think, founded about 2015 and Mm. You know, really started going a few years back. There's arrow farming in, they're actually right next door over in Newark, New Jersey. There's a handful of these companies in the space. There's a lot of companies doing indoor farming, which is kind of the broader umbrella that all of this sits under. And we're starting to see a lot of these products actually come to market right now. But I think it's a pretty good and fairly early time to be getting into all of this. Okay, perfect. I want to start with some definitions and then get into broader questions that we have prepped for you, Brian. You're completely in the hot seat this episode. So we did some preparation, of course, but um, we're going to be throwing you a lot. But to start, I think it would just be helpful for all of us to kind of walk through this difference between vertical farming that's indoor, closed loop, open loop. How do you kind of sort out all the different startups into different buckets and make sense of that? Yeah. So as I alluded to before, the bigger umbrella here is indoor farming, which is something that has been happening for decades, right? I mean, this dates back to greenhouses. And more recently, there's been a lot of breakthroughs that have been happening with organizations like NASA. There are a lot of departments over in NASA that are basically devoted to deep space exploration and terraforming planet colonization. And they're basically developing these technologies to grow all these things indoor. We've really hit an inflection point over the last couple of years that have allowed this concept of vertical farming to really come to fruition. It's something that was really developed around the turn of the century. And by the turn of the century, I mean, you know, 1999, 2000. 
Turn of the millennium, maybe is the way to say. Yeah, that. <laughs> I was, I was, I saw a debate about this recently about how we should no longer be referring to the uh, 20th century as as the turn of the century. That's just kind of addressing <laughs> our inevitable mortality at this point. Then beyond that, a lot of the distinctions have to do with the kinds of growing that these companies are doing. So uh, hydroponics is obviously the most familiar, using no soil and, and very small amounts of water, and basically cycling the water from this nutrient rich water from plant to plant. There are versions of it that rely more on just air. There's even a version that actually creates like a a micro ecosystem using fish. So there's a lot of interesting things being done in that space. But closed loop versus open loop. I'm very curious about that. I wasn't able to kind of nail down what that means, Brian. Uh, I don't have a good answer to that question right now. Oh, you were politely dodging that. That's point. right. That's okay, correct. I, I, I was like, <laughs> no, I, 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 that I, I need to preface this by saying that I am absolutely not an expert on this right now. I just wrote a long piece about it recently. That makes you yeah, an expert that, in by de- our By book. definition. But I guess like we're going to talk about some more startups later in the show. But one of the biggest things that came up when I was prepping for this topic was, are these startups leaning more on the promise of sustainability, like producing crops using less water, less energy? Or are they trying to promise that we're going to solve the overconsumption of food and start to produce more and more food? It seems like obviously everyone wants to promise both, but I'm wondering if you can do both at the same time. Because putting a skyscraper of shrimp in the sky seems like it's taking up a lot of energy. Right. Sure. Those two things are absolutely connected, right? I mean, as we're creating more and more food, as the population all over the world is ballooning, it's doing worse and worse things to the environment. You know, I will say that sustainability is exactly the thing that gets everybody's foot in the door. That's the thing that gets everybody excited about this technology. In a lot of cases, I think Bowery included, that was the first thing that got people interested in here. It's also, as both of you, I'm sure, are well aware, a, I don't want to say easy, but it will definitely accelerate investment excitement in your startup as well. You know, I don't know how early you want to really kind of dive into the sustainability question right now, but there are a lot of factors at play here. And when you ask a company like Bowery how sustainable the product is, they will tell you that they kind of view it big picture, right? One of the big appeals of vertical farming is that you're building these farms right next to major metropolitan areas. So again, like here, Kearney, New Jersey, it's like a 30 minute car ride from New York City. So you're saving a lot of carbon there because there aren't all these trucks driving back and forth. The majority of produce in the United States is coming from either the Midwest, but in a lot of cases, California. So when we get it out here in New York City, it is literally driving across the country. Now, you're putting that up against energy consumption is the biggest question mark right here. And the thing I always come back to is we've got this major renewable resource that everybody has access to that has grown plants since the dawn of agriculture and even before that. And all of these vertical farming companies that we're talking to right now, less the case with indoor farming, because a lot of them are actually greenhouses, but are building these in these big opaque buildings. The Bowery Farms are built in former fulfillment centers, and there's one going into a steel mill. So they're basically cutting off access to the sun in order to build this. And to do that, you need to run all these indoor lights. The flip side of that, Brian, though, is not everyone actually has access to the sun, because don't forget, Natasha does live in San Francisco. The sun has not come out (laughs) since 1847. It really hasn't. And so that's why it's not a great place to, to grow 
anything. But you make a good point. You know, if you put the farms inside, you preclude yourself from a natural source of energy, which means you have to bring in the energy. So are we seeing startups work to secure power on their own via solar panels, via green sources? Like, is there a standard method, Brian, that you're familiar with to get power in? Or are they pulling from dirty coal power and kind of polluting as much as they would anyways? Yeah, so we should take a step back, which is really the main reason why any of this is possible right now is because of those breakthroughs that we were talking about in LED technology before. So there's the aspect of NASA figuring out how to grow things with LEDs. And then beyond that, there is there's smartphones and TVs and Samsung and all, you know, LG, all these companies who are developing these panels have made these things smaller and smaller and more and more energy efficient. Because of that, I would say at this point, it is possible to at very least grow this stuff at a profit. The energy cost is another conversation entirely. And if you talk to a company like Bowery, and I think most of these companies are at least being mindful of this because they are ostensibly at least in the green space or interested in sustainability. They're using things like solar and wind farming. The farm that Bowery recently put up over in Maryland is largely powered by wind farming right now. I would say that if you just look at the energy aspect of things right now, it is probably a net negative, but things are getting more and more efficient. And there are a lot more sustainable options for powering these things. So like long term, we can probably get there. Okay, sweet. I'm going to ask a selfish follow up, which is when you're talking to startups, what questions do you ask them to understand how legit they're being about their energy claims and climate change promises? Yeah, it's hard. This is something that I don't know if we're allowed to mention Danny's name on the podcast. Now. <laughs> we're not. Uh, no. We're not. Danny is the, re- the reason. The, the reason why I've never been on Equity before because of our great feud. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's hard. It's really. It's very difficult. It's really difficult to untangle it because, again, I'm certainly not enough of an expert in this to tell you whether the energy usage balances out against the carbon footprint. Like, yeah. it's really. It's very hard to measure those two things. Now that said. Further complicated by the fact that there are so many moving parts, but like, for instance, as Natasha said at the beginning, building up versus building out, and part of that is land usage. And we are, we've gotten good at agriculture and we've been doing it for a long time. I think like about 10,000 years by most estimates, but it is like, it is destroying the soil, right? Yes. It is, it is like eroding. This, it's, it's just taking this like massive toll. If you look at the rainforests that have been cleared out and just we're bad with land usage on that front. So I don't have a good answer. And I think probably Probably none of these companies have a good answer right now because they're focused on profitability at the same time as well. So they're also focused on like, how can we do this as efficiently as possible? And that's why I'm not as concerned about making sure that every company in the vertical farming space is coming out net positive when we consider sustainability, power consumption, and carbon emission. Because if they can make money doing this, the technology will improve because they'll keep buying stuff. Prices will come down, the efficiency will go up, and it'll make more sense. To me, moving farming closer to people is inherently intelligent. And now that we can grow a farm very densely in buildings, I think we're going to do this forever. And I think we'll figure out the other details to make this all kind of like come into an equation that we appreciate the answer from. But I don't expect everyone to have that nailed today. It's like when people kept dismissing solar power. Oh, it's not that efficient. Oh yeah, it's getting better, but, 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 but. And then now 25 years later down the road, it's incredibly efficient. It's incredibly cheap and it kicks maximum butt. So I'm willing to let these companies be early in this curve and not tax them for that and demand them to be better than they can be. Timeline, though, the question is, do we have 25 years? Oh, no, we're all going to be dead in 25 years, Brian, but I still like the technology. (laughs) I'm going to make a really shitty parallel. Oh, I'm going to rephrase that because we're going to get bleeped out. I'm going to make a really silly (laughs) parallel with Rent the Runway. I feel like that company really promised us 
circular economy, reusing the closet, less waste with clothes. Like they really hammered on sustainability early on in their business. But they're also the biggest dry cleaning business in the country and they ship boxes all over the world. And so that's kind of where my cynical side comes in is like even the companies that benefit from the branding of climate or of being more climate focused and sustainability focused eventually need to catch up on that. This, I mean, this is the whole complaint we hear about with greenwashing, that companies put a thin patina of ecological care on top of their product or brand and then claim to be part of the uh, solution for sustained part of the problem. And you know what? I think it's a fair criticism, but it's hard to be a farm that's working on creating a higher level of efficiency to not end up moving directionally towards the stuff we'd want, Natasha. Because they do want lower power bills. They do want higher yields. They do want to be more efficient. And frankly, there's a lot of cost associated with generating the carbon that we're discussing, back to transportation points. So I almost think the business model is well-tuned to point towards economic success coming hand-in-hand with ecological success here. And that's one reason why I'm so excited about it. And also, just as another thing, I've done a little bit of farming. Very, very small. Oh, yeah. Can we tell people what you did? (laughs) (laughs) All right. (laughs) <laughs> I have worked on a farm. I mostly laid irrigation pumps and pipes. I also did some uh, berry harvester driving, night shift. And gosh, I mean, I, I've done a lot of kind of jack-of-all-trades stuff. I replaced all the Pretty nozzles cool. on top of some horizontal irrigation stuff. On it. It, it was a major farm that had like multiple locations. And so I was constantly driving between farms, literally like getting on the highway, going to the other farm, and then kind of bouncing around. So much space just an unconscionable amount of room. And so if we can condense that and make it more efficient and bring it closer to where folks actually consume, to me, my gosh, it just makes so much sense. Because you also see more efficient um, harvesting methods and like you could even have packaging inside the farm and faster cycles and better soil care. This is to me obviously the future. I'm just curious how soon it becomes the present. Yeah. We're all obviously thinking about greenwashing a lot lately with the the COP26 conference that's happening as we're recording this right now. I certainly wouldn't classify this as greenwashing. You know, this isn't like a private jet company telling people that they're green because... Reusable forks. Yeah, there you go. This is at the very least a concept that was developed for the purpose of sustainability. The efficiency efficiency is interesting. There are other potential benefits here as well that we should probably talk about, one of which is are the jobs that it creates. The number one, especially during the pandemic, but even prior to the pandemic, it's been really hard to find labor for farms. As I'm sure everybody's aware, they largely rely on migrant labor. And for various reasons, that's been a big problem as of late. And you use migrant labor because you don't have to pay those people very much. And, mm-hmm. you know, it, this is backbreaking labor. They're not being paid a lot for it. It's doing a huge amount of damage on their bodies. And because of that, these have been really hard jobs to fill. Now, if you go to one of these farms, as I did, they call them modern farmers over at Bowery. And, it, you know, they're, they're running the harvesting machines. They're doing these, like, I would say, and I'm saying this in a nice way, but it is probably closer to a fulfillment center job than it is to a farming job, you know, but he, but he, which is an upgrade yeah, because it's much better to pack boxes than it is to pick broccoli. Like if you don't know how broccoli is harvested, look it up. It's freaking miserable. Yeah. You know, I, I would say for the most part, that's true. I think you can learn how to code there at night as well. They do have some of these programs. So like, hopefully if people are interested in moving into that sector of things, it puts them on that path. But also these are happening in places like Kearney, New Jersey, and these are happening in a lot of these kind of industrial areas outside of major metropolitan regions where there is a scarcity of these sort of like safe and well-paying jobs. It feels like a great use case for robotics. And I feel like you don't usually place farms and robotics in the same sentence, but I'm wondering like how much appetite farms have 
for this kind of technology or at least working with a venture backed startup. I think there's like so many stigmas associated with venture, (laughs) aka what if you shut down overnight? So what are some of like, I guess, what does everyone think about those two sides collaborating? Yeah, maybe you don't think about robotics and farming a lot, Natasha, but I (laughs) I, Brian does every day. (laughs) I do as far, you know, because it is like, I would say it's like one of probably the top five most booming categories in robotics right now. Interesting. Okay. And it's a broad spectrum. John Deere, who is problematic for other reasons, has bought up a bunch of robotic startups. We're talking about like robotic tractors and weeding system irrigation. They're doing some really cool things in that space with yeah. more traditional farms. But there's a lot more opportunity for robotics in one of these indoor or vertical farms because you're basically operating on rails. You're operating in a really controlled environment. Iron Ox is one of the, yes, the companies exactly. that I pointed to earlier. They're not doing vertical farming. It's just indoor farming in these. They're basically like greenhouses, but they grow these trays and this little robot, I'm making motions with my hands that only the two of you can see. I would describe them as being similar to the, you know, the Kiva robots <laughs> that Amazon bought to start Amazon Robotics. So these kind of circular robots and they drive under the tray of plants, they pick the plants up, they bring it to a station to do basically like inventory to see how it's growing and see whether it's time to harvest, you know, and if it's not, it they like puts it back or moves it to a different growth center. And Bowery has a similar system like that, but it's entirely indoors. They don't really, I think because it's at least partially proprietary, they don't really talk about it right now, but this is all incredibly data driven. And that's something that you absolutely need to talk about when you're talking about the net benefits of here of this technology is these growth trays are monitored 24 seven by these cameras. You've got an image of them, you've got temperature, you know exactly what the humidity is. And Bowery is developing what it calls recipes, which let you know that if you want to grow something that tastes exactly like that, like the wasabi arugula, then you need these exact form factors. And it's something that they can replicate. And this does away with one of the worst parts of what people call dirt farming, which is farming outside, which is the weather, which can ruin a crop, which can, I mean, we've seen commodity prices spike up and down on the back of different weather conditions around the world. If you farm indoors and your power and water sources are stable, which they will be because you wouldn't build a vertical farm where those weren't the case, you don't have those problems, which means repeatability. I mean, it's the idea of having recipes to that level of specificity, Brian, to me is super exciting. Higher yields, lower failures, fewer farmers going into horrible debt and committing suicide. Like, I mean, there's a lot of just holistic benefits. Just to bring in another voice to this, Brian, I know you recently got on the horn with a person who wrote a book about vertical farming, kind of came up with the idea, maybe even coined it to a large degree. And you had a fascinating conversation about the role of government and maybe who should be leading the charge on vertical farming. And I want to play that for everyone. So take a listen. Profitability level is a remarkable subject in itself. Because when you consider any other animal on this planet besides us, that is never a consideration for whether they feed their young or not. Can they afford to feed those baby cubs or do they just go out and kill a moose? The answer is very simple. Food is primal. For people, it's an economic commodity. And it really is sad to see that happening. It's funny to hear you be surprised that what's leading all of the vertical farming are these startups, are these companies, are these sort of capitalistic concerns. I mean, you know, reading the book and having spoken with you, it seemed like your hope, at least at the time, was that this would be more of a civic push. Well, it will be. <laughs> but I think everything has to start somewhere. And so mm. the fact that we're talking to each other over computers 20 years ago, that wouldn't have been happening. Once you realize what we can do now, In another 10 years, we will have a much different conversation. I think the food varieties will be different. The companies will be different. The ownerships 
might be communal rather than uh, individuals or corporates. I know obviously China has been very proactive about this. They've got drought and famine issues and obviously this tremendously large population that continues to grow. I will say that I am slightly pessimistic when it comes to the involvement of government, just from the standpoint of, you know, I'm looking at this infrastructure bill right now and something that seemingly as simple as, you know, paying for a COVID response or like fixing the freeways and the bridges has just been this incredibly difficult, drawn out process. But do you see a future wherein uh, the government can take a more involved and proactive approach in helping realize your vision? Yes. In fact, I did mention that in the original version of my uh, vertical farm book, too. But it was probably glossed over a lot because that's near the end of the book and you can get tired of reading about this subject <laughs> after a while, right? Yeah. I suppose the role that these companies can play early on is is a proof of concept. I mean, I would assume that pragmatically before the government is going to invest billions or trillions in this technology, it needs to be proven out to some degree. So, Brian, one, thank you for bringing that audio to us and letting us parse through it and pull out our favorite bit. But I was hoping you could dive in a little bit more about why you think private corporations have a role to play in driving this technology forward versus letting the government just kind of take the reins and, and handle it. Yeah, I. it's interesting talking to somebody like Dixon Despommier because he is he's an idealist like to a fault. And as I was interviewing the founder and CEO of Bowery, I think he put it best. He said, he said, Dixon has kind of been our North Star. And it's not necessarily the North Star's job to be the pragmatist about these things. It's his role to basically create these big ideas. And then whatever party it is, whether it's a company or the government or whomever comes in and, and really sort of like figures out how these things work on the ground. And if you, if you read the book, which, which I highly recommend, there's a lot of images of these shrimp tower, <laughs> which I guess we're calling it, of these like giant skyscrapers. And they're basically like combination living and working spaces and his grand vision is that every single modern building built in the future will have some sort of farm built into it and this sounds all sounds wonderful right and this is all something i think like you know most of us can probably get behind getting like fresh sustainable produce in in the cities and his initial vision was that a lot of this would happen through the government and there's a lot of roadblocks there one of which is bureaucracy all these things it governments don't always get to be the most innovative. And also farm subsidies. I mean, you know, obviously in probably at least like half the Senate, it's in their best interest to make sure that the money is going to more traditional farming. They don't really want to lose these jobs. So yeah. in our current system, it made the most sense that a lot of these companies with sort of capitalistic motivations had to come in and develop a lot of their early innovation here. This reminds me of a different conversation I'm having with a company called Truveta. And to be clear, entirely different space. What they're doing is working with regional healthcare providers, aggregating data, de identifying it and creating a portal where people can kind of go and track daily information on the health of America. And the corollary or the kind of analogy point here is that I cannot imagine the government managing to do that because the government would take 68 years to work with these companies, come up with a plan, get budget allocated through Congress, build a tech platform that fails. But this private company has done this, launched it, and it's now kind of out in the market. And so to me, there is a, a great use case for private companies that are less encumbered by red tape and literally bureaucracy to drive this stuff forward. And so I'm fundamentally excited. But I want to talk about commercial viability or kind of present day commercialization, if you will. Uh, Natasha, we have a couple of examples about some stuff that didn't go perfectly well, I think. Oh, actually, I was going to start with a more positive oh, please. <laughs> collaboration, well, yeah, no, no, if that's okay. That. Yeah, well, this is one that I think struck me, which was that we saw berry farmer Driscoll's. Do you guys know like that brand of strawberries? Yeah. Yes. Yes. 
Yeah. Okay, cool. They announced a partnership with a vertical farming company, Plenty Unlimited, to grow its strawberries year round in indoor farming. Driscoll's was an investor in Plenty's last round. And I felt like that partnership was like kind of a taste of what commercialization, validity around commercialization efforts. Brian, what was your take on that deal? Yeah. So, I mean, one thing that I should say is that none of this is hypothetical, right? I mean, in a lot of Whole Foods around the country, a lot of major supermarkets, Fresh Direct, you can go and buy AeroFarms product. You can go and buy Bowery. So like this stuff is being grown right now and you can go to a store and buy it right now. Cost per unit, like these are conversations that we need to have. As far as like that partnership specifically, so one of the things that I had a chance to do while I was visiting a farm was try the produce and they were growing strawberries. I'm from California originally and I went to school in the Central Coast So I went to school near Watsonville, actually, in Santa Cruz, where the best strawberries probably in the world. Yeah, you have high standards. (laughs) Very high standards. And I live in New York City right now. And my standards are very low standards. I have very low standards. Have you tried the $30 strawberries? Sorry, I'm totally getting us off topic. Okay. (laughs) Wait, wait, I'm sorry. There are $30 strawberries? Uh, Yeah. What? It's in New York, right? I don't know. I've never heard of them, but that's okay. Okay, Natasha, what the the flip is a $30 Um, strawberry. It's like, there's like, I think it's a store in, in New York, but I will, I'll link it in the show notes. I, I feel like we have, it's kind of crazy. We have to deliver on this one. I keep thinking that, that Pulp Fiction, Samuel Jackson clip the, of the $5 shake. I haven't <laughs> seen, like, Pulp, I haven't seen Pulp Fiction. Yeah, what? Same, same. I mean, I'm so embarrassed. Okay. The, 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 a $5 shake is literally what Shake Shack charges me today for a shake. It was expensive yeah, in the context of the- Yeah, this is 94, so it okay. was, yeah. Right. Basically, or, or, you know, or, or the Simpsons joke of like, that better be the best- sandwich I've ever tasted in my life. You got lucky like that, that sort of thing that like for $30, like nothing in the world could ever live up to my expectations of a $30 strawberry. Okay, perfect. But I will say, bringing us back to, to where we were, you grew up in California, you live in New York, yep. you had these strawberries while doing the research. And the question now is, were they good? They were fine. They were no. not, they, they were not. Damn it. They were fine. They were fine. Like, so I'm going to do this with my hands. Again, this is not good for podcasting, but like if you have eaten a strawberry from the central coast of California or Watsonville, they're like, like six inch strawberries. Like they're these, like they're huge and they, they taste different. I was trying to explain to a friend from the East coast that like, it is just like an entirely, she told me, she's like, I never, I don't like strawberries. And I'm, you know, and I did that jerk thing of like, you've never had a real strawberry, try this. And they're pretty good. The ones that they've grown, but I'm saying this in their very long way of saying this in their defense, which is I have tried to buy strawberries in my local supermarket in New York city. And nearly a hundred percent of the time they've been like damaged or moldy. And that's mostly a result of the fact that in most cases, they're best case scenario driving up from Florida and probably coming from California. There's some statistic that I don't have offhand, but it's something like the average age of an apple in a supermarket is something like 16 months yeah. from picking. Jeez. They've been preserved. They, they're, they've gotten really good at this. They've gotten really good at transporting, preserving these things. But like most of the produce that you're buying in grocery stores is pretty old. If you build a large farm next to a city, you can reduce that. Unless you've worked on a farm like Alex, like this is the freshest produce you've ever had. I mean, I didn't get to eat the produce. I did get some okay. berries thrown at me occasionally, but I don't... <laughs> did, they, did they check your pockets as you were leaving the farm? No, that, that was... <laughs> Let me tell you, if you try to check my pockets after a 12-hour shift driving a berry harvester two miles an hour in a straight line, um, I'd punch you in the face because that's how many Fs <laughs> I would give at the end of that. Farming's just hard. 
Like there's nothing easy about it. It's unpredictable and miserable. And if we can roboticize it, stick it inside and, and make it work more efficiently, I'm just in favor of it. We're running a little bit low on time. So Brian, the last thing I wanted to get into is just how many startups are we talking about here? What's the cadence? Is it a lot of companies? Is it only a couple of later stage firms? How should we think about kind of the startup push in the broader vertical farming world? It's a hard number to gauge. One, because there's just, it's sort of nebulous as to what actually constitutes a vertical farm. And also there's a lot of stuff happening in other countries. If you read the piece, Japan was a big focus because they've been doing this for a really long time. And there's a company in Japan called Spread that, as far as I know, was the first company to actually really reach profitability on this. And they did so because of the tsunami and the destruction of the nuclear plant in, in Fukushima. But to the best of my knowledge, there are at least 200 vertical farms in Japan alone. There's a lot of this happening in places like Dubai and Abu Dhabi are really looking to this for obvious reasons. They're in the middle of the desert. It's impossible to grow produce there. And if you've got these major metropolises springing up in the middle of the desert, well, what if you could actually grow farms there? So, you know, I would say that there's probably, if I had to guess, probably like dozens in the U.S. alone. Yeah. It's actually kind of interesting to hear you frame it that way, because of course, Japan would have more vertical farms. It's actually a a place that is relatively, I don't know if this is fair, but kind of like landmass poor, like it doesn't have a lot of square footage per person because it's just a chain of islands. The U.S., in contrast, has this enormous middle bit where like eight people live. And if you don't like that comment, fly over the Midwest and look down. There's no one there. It's just corn. And so we almost have less of an inherent need for vertical farming, given that we have lots of space. But at the same time, it can still be a sustainability factor that pushes us more in this direction. Um, But we might, I guess we might see more of advanced vertical farming in nations that have less landmass and also less arable land, just kind of frankly, overall. Yeah, right, like, I, I think that's right. My cynical side says that it's not the sustainability question that's necessarily going to push it when we, I don't know, maybe this will be controversial, but like when we live in a country where probably half the population doesn't believe in human-made anthropogenic climate change, then like certainly it's going to be really hard to have the government push innovation on that front. And because at least at the moment, there is a lot of, as you said, arable landmass in the States, like that won't be the thing that pushes it here. For better, for worse, what's going to push it here is whoever the first company is that can prove that they can be like truly profitable growing lettuce. Right. If, if you're a startup that's betting on like the goodwill of humans to be successful, you probably won't be successful. But if you can find a version of your pitch that either can appeal to someone's selfishness or at least their overall quality of life immediately, it sounds like you have a better strategy ahead of you. So I completely echo your point. Brian. All right. Well, to close this off, I'm going to throw in a more positive note than that because <laughs> I would be willing to pay more pretty much every single shopping trip for a lower carbon footprint, more ecologically friendly set of goods. And frankly, we're trying to shop this way. We're trying to shop in ways that generates fewer single use plastics and that sort of thing. I mean, that's part of my consciousness. And I don't think I'm at all special in that. I think I do kind think of you like- are actually like, I feel like we're really privileged with how much money we have, right? Like, I feel like yeah. most Americans have to buy McDonald's because that's all they can afford. I, yeah, I, yes, I meant okay. mindset wise, not financially, but sure. Go right, ahead sure, and stick, you're that, fine. Sure, I know, but finance, I think, still like I think impacts right. mindset, right? Like, yeah, I, I think you're right that like hypothetically, most people would like to do the thing that is sure. the best for the earth. I think Natasha is right. I think that there's a reason why organic produce sells, you know, fairly well, particularly in major metropolitan areas and particularly among people who do have more disposable income. You know, if you look at the Valerie box or the box of any of these companies, 
there are other benefits there. For obvious reasons, no pesticides are needed, right? I mean, there, there are all of the benefits that you have in organic produce that you're finding on these things because they're grown in a really controlled environment indoors. In order to really break out and distinguish what these companies have to do to be successful is they need to be cheaper than organic produce. And that's the kind of thing that's only going to come with massive scale, because I think most people would like to make these sorts of buying decisions when they're standing in the supermarket, but probably a majority of people are buying whatever's cheapest and most readily available. Yep. Yeah. Well, brings us back to the solar point, you know, long-term cost curves, overall improving technology. Uh, a space we're going to keep an eye on, guys, ag tech is not the thing that everyone is the most excited about in the world. It is not new features on Snap's social network, <laughs> but it is incredibly important because we all actually eat, it turns out. Brian here, our hardware editor, as always, an absolute treat. You have a newsletter, by the way, about robotics. Tell people about that. I will. It's launching very soon. It's currently a column that you can find over on TechCrunch called Actuator. It is a weekly robotics newsletter that comes out on Thursday mornings. And some of the best headlines on the site. Some of the best headlines on the site. I include it in Daily Crunch because it's just funny. When is it going to come out as a newsletter, Brian? What's the uh, what's the launch date there? I don't know if I'm at liberty to say. <laughs> you yeah, are. But, you but are. I, we we give you, you liberty. Come on. Come on. Uh, next month. Oh. December, ladies and gentlemen. So December. go ahead and find Actuator. And Brian Heater, where can people find your punk ass on Twitter? Uh, Be Heater. Be Heater on Twitter. Yes, Flex. indeed. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Flex, uh, a real treat. We'll have you back. Thank you for your time. And Natasha, uh, I'll see you on Friday. Yes, see you soon. Thanks, guys. <laughs>